it's it's very funny that we you know we have pop music telling us how to be just be true to ourselves and be your true self and love yourself and then we act in such horrible ways and we don't do it welcome to the crooked table podcast where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle and now your host robert yannis jr Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. This week, I am uh, honored to be joined by Bianca Garner. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. Hi, welcome. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I'm welcoming you. I'm so used to doing my own podcast. Oh, yeah, that's Uh, true. So that's actually a good segue. So tell (laughs) listeners that, that... uh, I somehow are involved in film Twitter and don't know who you are. Uh, can you t- tell people a little bit about uh, Filmotomy and also, you, you know, your new podcast you're going to be starting? Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm B, um, also known as the Film B over at Twitter, and I do a lot of different things. But my main focus is writing and hosting the Filmotomy podcast. Uh, well, I, I do. Um, basically we cover all sorts of films we're just uh, winding up Rewind um, from 1979 so we went back to 1979 and covered loads of films from that year and um, we also uh, have our own Femme Filmmakers Festival coming up in September which will be focusing all on female filmmakers uh, past and present and um, my, I have some big news, which is kind of exciting. I'm also going to be launching my own podcast soon, which is called In Their Own League, which is a podcast which centers all around female filmmakers, not just uh, filmmakers, but uh, screenwriters, producers, cinematographers, editors, everybody, you know, working in the industry and examining their work. So, yeah, I do quite quite a lot. I also write for Next Best Picture, Jump Cut Online and VOD Zilla as well. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm out of breath. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, other than, I mean, other than how do you find time for all of that? Um, <laughs> How how is that process going of, of starting your own podcast? After uh, I mean, I'm sure having all the experience with Filmotomy really helps and and all that. So how how is that? How have you found that process of you know kind of brainstorming the concept and all of that? Well, coming up with the actual concept of the podcast is the easy part, I think, <laughs> because it's you know I just thought well, I like uh, I'm. I've always really wanted to um, champion uh, female filmmakers and those working in the industry who are underrepresented. So that's what I want my podcast to be. And the probably the hardest part is trying to find a microphone. <laughs> um, it's all the technical bits. Like oh, I've just been talking to a lot of people, trying to be like, which one do you recommend? Which editing software do you use? Right. Um, yeah, that's the side of things which is the bit that's taking the most time. <laughs> Actually, getting the you know the idea of the podcast was just came to me just you know um, like just that like sort of light bulb moment. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. Like in the um, in in the 
podcasting community, or I guess specifically in the film podcasting community, I feel like I'm seeing more and more people create their their own shows from you know from their own point of view, having more representation of LGBT, of, of female, of women, uh, people of color, and things like that. And I think, as speaking as a primarily white guy who has a podcast, there's a lot of white guys on podcasts, so it's nice to have uh, diversity of voices and and bring you know because a lot of times you bring something to the forefront that um, that hasn't really be, been considered or really discussed very much and things like that. And uh, I think that's I think that's an exciting, uh, exciting venture that you have going on. And I look forward to, to checking it out and listening to it. Oh, that's so nice to hear. And uh, I would be honored to have you join us as a guest. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in the future, because I think we've, we've got loads in in common and uh, it's I, what I want to do with the podcast is bring everybody on board and, and get their perspective and point of view because I think you know yours is probably going to be different to mine and that's what I find interesting well th- well that's part of with well, with this show that's part of why I like bringing on different people every week so it's me and and you know this week it's me and you and next week it'll be me and, and somebody completely different and just brings in the the different voices constantly so I'm getting different perspectives or they're bringing different movies that either you know I hadn't seen or like this one that I saw years ago and it was like huh time to reconsider that and of course the movie (laughs) you brought is from a female filmmaker female screenwriters and and uh, we'll get into why that is so uh, pertinent shortly but um but yeah, I, I think to say I think that's really uh, that's really important. And you're because you're really plugged into film Twitter I, as I you know as I am, and I feel like every week there's a new controversy. Like as of this recording, <laughs> it's the whole the uh, what is it, the Hollywood Reporter with that Dora the Explorer yeah. thing. And I'm like, oh, dude, really? <laughs> it's like, come on. Um, it, it's just uh, you know. The, cries for cries uh for help as far as diversity and representation <laughs> things like that so um so it's it you know it's 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 cool to to be seeing more and more of that yeah definitely so i i guess before we get any uh any further you you wanted to pick this movie uh, for a specific reason that he's saying you said american psycho which is what we're going to talk about here is one of your uh one of your favorite films so we'll get into that in a minute so let's just first listen to a little bit of the trailer right now I feel lethal, on the verge of frenzy. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. Do you have any witnesses or fingerprints? Actually, yes. Hmm. You're inhuman. I know my uh, behavior can be erratic sometimes. I'm into, uh, well, murders and executions, mostly. I have all the characteristics of a human being, but not a single clear, identifiable emotion. I simply am not there. I, uh... (laughs) I just had to kill a lot of people! That was a little bit of the trailer for American Psycho, directed by Mary Heron. Uh, so what is it about this movie that made you uh, select this one to talk about? I think it's a movie that initially, when I first watched it, I was very horrified by. And it didn't really... I, I was 
kind of confused and I felt a bit uncomfortable watching it. Um, I kind of had this initial response of, I like this film, but I don't know if I should be liking it. (laughs) Uh, And I think it's a film which is saying a lot, but I think it gets often misinterpreted, you know, misunderstood and read the wrong way and as a result it's almost like Chinese whispers that people say oh it's about this it's about that and they take away a completely different meaning to what the film is actually saying Mm -hmm. and it has a, a reputation to it it's kind of like a film like Fight Club it's almost been taken over and adopted as this you know film all about masculinity but I think it's it's a little bit more than that it's a little bit more than toxic masculinity it's saying something on a bigger scale about society as a whole mm-hmm. and I think it's really interesting that it comes from a female filmmaker because I wasn't aware until many many years later after I actually done some research into the film and a lot of it is really when you realize that you read the film in a completely different way and it's a very feminist film for me uh even though that the main character is a male there are are a lot of things it's saying about masculinity and identity which i don't think a, a male director would have necessarily been able to convey uh, and they would have perhaps focused more on the violence and the sexual aspects of the, the film's narrative, where I think this is really an interesting, complex character study, but also um, a study of society as a whole, at least Western society as a whole, and capitalism and that sort of consumer culture that we, have, we find ourselves in. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And um, I mean, did you? When did you first see it? When did you first see the movie? Uh, I probably saw saw it when I was eighteen, I guess. Um, so I didn't watch it when I was like super young or anything. Uh, That's but, good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that there's been some people who have said, "Oh, I saw this at ten years old," and Oof. you think, "Oh, okay, that explains a lot," um, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah so I kind of caught it and I think I watched it with my partner so we were just sort of he had heard about it I had heard about it so we went into it and we both were like I think he was expecting a bit more you know violence and gore kind of like you know a slasher type of movie but what we got was something completely different well, it's also too with the the you know the poster and and like mm. the, the tagline is like killer looks. It's like it it's marketed almost like a like a slasher film, kind of like uh, in the way that the straight to video like uh, quasi sequel <laughs> that they did with Mila Kunis, where it was just like derivative and just kind of you know I, I guess kind of pointless. But because um, for me, I actually saw this. I think I saw part of it like flipping around on TV one day, and I saw. The worst part to stumble across, which is the 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 aftermath of the the sex scene with uh, that involves the chainsaw and all of that. Like that's the part that I saw. That was my first impression was seeing that scene with um, what is it? I guess air quotes Christy 
seeing the the blood under the sheets and then him chasing her into the stairwell. This was the first my first impression of the movie. So I was like, what the hell is this? So it took me a while to actually come around to, all right, let me let me watch this. I think it was probably either right before or right around the time of um, Batman Begins because uh, I'd seen The Machinist, which actually has some thematic connections, I think, to this movie, another Christian Bale film. And um, yeah, so that was my initial impression. And I watched I watched it then and... Like I knew what it, I could see what it was going for, but I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it because the the movie is disturbing in a lot of ways, <laughs> um, you know. But but it's it's go, it's considered almost more of a dark comedy, I I guess. I uh, it's kind of shrugging to that because <laughs> it's like I see the elements of that. But it, would you, would you consider this more of a dark comedy or more of a, a satire or horror? Like where would you how would you even categorize this? Because it's one of those films that yeah. Kind of defies categorization, I guess. It's a satire, in a way, but I, it is a horror. Horror, but it's not a horror in the sense of like a psychological horror, or you know, or a slasher movie. I think it's more a horror, a horror to do with the horror of society. Mm-hmm. If, That's exactly if what we, I was thinking. Yeah, <laughs> if we let the sort of toxicity of society run rampant that's what the result is we get these patrick bateman style characters uh, who think they can get away with murder and you know uh, he does to a degree i mean i don't know how much of it is real but he's not the only character in that film who is up to no good Mm. all of them that he interacts with are right pieces of work so I don't I don't want to say I mean there's definitely a lot of dark comedy in it I mean that business card scene is oh a classic example <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's you know to your point about the violence I think it's telling that in my research preparing for this episode I kept coming across that the Brett Easton Ellis novel that came out that this is based on that came out nine years this movie came out in 2000 that book I think is from 1991 was much much more violent mm. much like more graphic in its depictions of the like he even even in the film itself when he's the big scene which we'll get to later where Christian Bale is on the phone and he's uh, or Patrick Bateman is on the phone and he's confessing all the crimes like we didn't see half of that and he's talking about oh I ate some of their brains like really grotesque like, imagery Mm. that the movie just doesn't even touch it just kind of skates by with as little on-screen violence as possible with the scene with uh with paul allen you you know you see the blood go on patrick's face you don't see the aftermath like there's a lot more implied violence than there is actual on-screen violence in this film and i think and i think that's that's a part of it sorry go ahead (laughs) no i was just gonna say i think that's why it's more effective because our imagination is then um, used to fill in the blanks because we're like, okay, what's happened to his body? Where did it go? Like, and then we see all these, you know, that's a bit where he go, she, Chrissy runs into the the cupboard and there's those poor women hanging up like suits on on hangers. Like, how did that happen? And I think that's what's disturbing about the film is that so much is left for us to to come up with and that's forcing us as a viewer to think like like Patrick Bateman yeah that makes it for a very uncomfortable watch so you mentioned identity earlier and I think that's really telling uh, that's a really interesting 
angle that this film delves into because his whole thing is he's he's this you know fit white guy you know late 20s early 30s whatever and he's basically works with a bunch of people who wear the exact same glasses as him (laughs) uh have business cards that look pretty much the same i mean they're all vice presidents they're they like basically just carbon copy corporate drones basically uh and I think, you know, it makes sense to set it in the 80s because that's all the height of excess, the height of, you know, everybody's doing cocaine and listening to, like, new, new wave music or whatever. And the movie does a great job of establishing that uh, that time and really tapping into, like, the, the whole Wall Street greed is good uh, vibe of that era. Uh, and he's mentioned several times, Patrick, that, you know, he's just, he can't quit it. Uh, Evelyn says, you should quit your job. And he's like, I can't, I want to fit in. And his whole thing is... The pressure that he feels to be good enough or or to prove himself, and then you know the violent urges, I guess, simmering under the surface, are just his like that he can't, you know, he can't deal. That's like the way that the stress uh, weighs on him. So speak to that a little about about that side of the film. Yeah, I think that's a it's this case of this need to conform, um, even though you know you. You want to be an individual. You want to stand out, but is it sometimes the this overwhelming sense of having to be like everybody else because you don't, you know, you don't want to be uh, become a social miscast because right. you know if he was to admit to, you know, the worst. I think he's the worst insult for him to receive is you know oh at the end where his lawyer calls him a dork or something you know this idea of being seen as not a a macho man and not this strong popular guy that 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 sends him on a spiral course and and maybe that's a reason that he acts out in these really like masculine ways of committing such horrible crimes is because you know how else is he meant to represent himself how then you know and stand out from the crowd with his you know to be individual then to there isn't any other way because it's stuck he's stuck in this culture where everybody wants to be like everyone else and i think it's coming from a 2019 perspective with social media and instagram Mm -hmm. and youtube and you know every everybody seems to want to be like everyone else now we all want the same sort of thing we all want to have you know a million followers on snapchat or you know everybody's um, looking for external validation basically yeah yeah so it's a it's a really interesting film because if you take away that uh idea of being an individual and you strip it away then what are you left with and and how does how how do you respond to that as mentally and i think that we see that some some people snap under the pressure and you know then commit horrible crimes and i think it's interesting that his he keeps referring to serial killers he mentions ted bundy i think um yeah 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 so it's you know, this idea of them becoming notorious as well is, you know, he just wants someone to notice him and be remembered. 
Um, it's quite amusing that it gets mistaken for lots of other people. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's that's kind of the the worst thing for for Patrick Bateman, as you mentioned earlier with the the whole dork comment, is that he's just so terrified of being considered anonymous and and not. Mm. Which it's it's weird. There's a, there's a strange conundrum there. It's like you want to stand up, you want to like fit in with everyone, and but to the point that you just you're you're all you're all you all look exactly the same like there is no distinction it's 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 a confusing kind of uh dichotomy there i think and and the fact that you know the him and his coworkers are all obsessed with status and competition it's basically like a, a never-ending dick measuring contest between all of them <laughs> and uh you know the fact that we never really really see we never get a sense for who Patrick Bateman is. I mean, he's even saying in the beginning, he's like, I don't exist. And, and he's mm. just, you know, does, has this incredibly elaborate morning routine just to try and make sure his skin is perfect so that he can get, you know, remarks on it by, you know, by the, the lady at the, the massage parlor or whatever, I think. And, um, he, you know, I, I wonder what he is actually like. The only real, I think, um, indication that we get about what Patrick is like when he's not trying to fit in is, uh, well, his violent revolt <laughs> against the system, I guess. And then also like all this quote, like mainstream music that he listens to that he's like, really, he's, he only tells people about his taste in music when he's about to murder them. Basically. It's the only time that he's really upfront about it. Cause you see him in the car with Evelyn at one point and he's listening to Robert Palmer. And then, other than that, he talks about Whitney Houston and Huey Lewis, uh, Phil Collins, you know, really pop, poppy musicians uh, of the time, but not really considered, I guess, cool by by his crowd. So uh, I, th- I think that was kind of an interesting running uh, commentary that like the, the kind of music that he listens to and how he was so, uh, I don't know, protective of his of his taste in, mm. in music uh, until you know, he's uh, getting ready to axe murder somebody, basically. And of course, I'm talking about the the Yui, the famous, which now we have that great gif of him dancing <laughs> in the little... <laughs> and that's the other thing. This movie had has had such enormous cultural relevance, and I think in large part because of how resonant its themes are, that this movie made $15 million at the box office domestically and $34 million worldwide. And yet people are still referring to it. People still talk about it. Uh, you know, you even have, I think, on your Twitter thing, returning some videotapes. <laughs> so it's 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 crazy that this movie has stood the test of time in that way. Um, what what do you you know? I, I was gonna I guess I was gonna say why do you think that is, but I think we already kind of touched on that. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think it's it's just a, a movie now that is more relevant now than it was back in two thousand when it came out. Um, because our society has become this idea of, you know, everything's superficial, everything's about the image. I'm not saying that everyone's like that, but there is a large uh, proportion of people who are, you know, look at how often we try to take a selfie and get the best angle. You know, I'm just imagine what Patrick Bateman would be like in today's society. Like, how obsessed would he be about Twitter followers, you know, I always want to see it remade so I could see that. <laughs> well, even in in the film, uh, he's filming a lot of his murders. Just I, mm. you know, I guess for his own entertainment or or whatever. Uh, but, but that's actually one question I was going to ask. Like, 
where do you what do you think would happen for Patrick Bateman after this movie ends? Like if they were to make a sequel set, I guess set now or set, you know, sometime in the late 90s or something. What do you mm. what do you think would happen because in this movie he try he he tr- he basically conf- kind of confesses to his violent urges multiple times throughout the course of the movie so, but either nobody hears him or understands him i mean there's actually the 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 slyest moment that i i i recognize of that when he says oh i'm really into murders and executions and the lady's like Oh, you know, most people I know who are into mergers and acquisitions you know, really don't enjoy it or something <laughs> like that. So clearly most of what when he's confessing, it's probably a lot of it's in his head. So do you think any of these murders actually happened? Did the movie, the ending of the movie kind of says not. Uh, and if so, what happens next for him? This, like, how, how thin is the line before he just eventually starts killing people for real, I guess, is probably what I the feel, next thing is. Yeah, I feel like he would get into politics. You know, that's the best answer then, you could have possibly said, yeah. <laughs> especially well, nowadays. About, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that he wouldn't want to get his own hands dirty. So he would get other people's like, you know, to do his dirty work for him. I just feel like he would be the person that's like, you know, like a Al Gore type of. But it's no, um, I don't know American politics, so I apologize. Who's the guy that's in Vice? Who's also Christian Bale? Oh, uh, Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney. I don't know your politics at all, but <laughs> I was trying to outgore someone completely different, isn't it? Nowadays, <laughs> um, yes, it is. Nowadays, you're probably better off not knowing our politics, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just picture it like that. I feel like he would want to go and invade these countries because, you know, why not? And and go and, yeah, it as a sort of status a symbol or something you know so i feel like he would definitely do very well in in politics <laughs> i think i think i read somewhere once that most like a, a large proportion of people who go into like you know ceos and stuff in that type of high power jobs or have sociopathic tendencies so <laughs> no i don't know whether that's true or a myth so don't don't quote me on that but yeah, there's definitely something. Something you need to have some sort of. Yeah. I was gonna say. I was gonna say. Yeah. If you if you want to say that he'd be Donald Trump, you can just say that. Okay, I'll just say that. Yeah. Not to get there not to go. get too political, but I mean, even people on both sides of the political spectrum recognize the the situation with that. So. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, there's so much in this movie. As a straight white male who tries to not be a terrible person. There's a lot of thing, a lot of stuff in here, like not even the murders, just like the way he, the way he talks to uh, his secretary, mm. like everything. So as a woman, how do you feel about the treatment of women in this movie? Not just the violence, just like the attitudes, like the, the men are all sitting around saying like, oh, there's no such thing as a girl with a good personality a girl's talent or whatever that means. Only ones that are talented are the ugly ones because they have to whatever, like all that stuff, which is just almost as, as upsetting for me to watch as the, the actual violence scene. So what, wh- how is, you know, what is your, I mean, obviously it's satirical, but still. Yeah. I think that, um, there's one scene for me, which really stands out is when, um, the, the I think it's very early on in the film and he's walking down like the, the road and there's a woman in front of him and, you can you get this sense like oh my god something bad's going to happen to her but then they just re 
reached that point of like about to cross the road and he just looks at her and it's that uh, I've been in a situation where you've been alone late at night and I've you know been walking and you feel like someone's like following you and you you feel so threatened and you get to you know I, I don't think anyone could have captured that who hasn't been in that situation before I feel like that's a, 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 a very personal moment and it really left me quite sh- shook up by it you know um, in terms of the violence and everything that's very shocking as well but that one moment is you know something that I've actually experienced before being you know um having to you know cross the road having to go another route you know walking faster and and not having you know anyone else around to to ask for help but it's a very uncomfortable situation and in terms of the lock I suppose you would call it locker talk uh that goes on between the men I mean it's it's just so I mean anyone who watches those scenes and thinks oh that's so cool they're talking like that oh I you know uh, I really admire that then oh, I don't know <laughs> it's just it's, I, I hope there aren't people like that but you know it's just it's yeah it's just really uncomfortable but I it tells us so much about the characters without actually, you know, giving us the 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 whole backstory. We know about those those characters and how they think and um, how they, they, like I said, everybody else that's around Patrick is also quite awful. <laughs> um, so he's, you know, and the fact that he wants to fit in and be like them is. You know, shocking because why would you want to be like those people who how they you know like you say how he talks to his poor secretary who I think is you know the only nice character in that film <laughs> yeah I think so and I think some part of Patrick recognizes that because whether it's imagined or not he at one point has her there and is prepared mm. to kill her I mean that's the other thing like I wonder how much of that really happened and how much of that was in his own head but you know, I, I think that um, he because he tells her to leave or something bad might happen. Of course, she thinks she's going to be hurt as in like they're going to hook up and then she's he's going to break her heart or something. When in actuality, she could get murdered any second. Yeah, I I think that the movie is really smart about the way that it uses. It really just focuses in on the uh, the business cards, which is a big trigger for him. That's why he wants to go and kill Paul Allen. <laughs> see, he can't deal with how perfect the business card is, and he's getting all sweaty and, and freaking out. Um, and the dinner reservations, which are like uh, the only thing these guys talk about, are their dinner reservations to the point that he fakes taking uh, Courtney to Dorsia, <laughs> like by being by. By like, I guess, I don't know if he drugged her up or what was going on there exactly, but to kind of pretend pass a different restaurant off at that so that word can get around that. Oh, I got a reservation at Dorja. Um, but the, the other element of that that I think is great is that the the satire in the food that they talk about, like every literally every dish that they mention sounds com- sounds completely made up. I mean, I, I think I wrote one down. There was like mud soup and charcoal arugula. I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> All the food is so silly, but it sounds like something that these like 
quote, upscale restaurants would serve. Uh, so it's, it's like the business cards. It's everybody kind of stumbling over each other to no end, really. Uh, how, do, how do you feel about the, uh, the reservation thing and like the way that the, I guess the more playful aspects of the movie, I mean, it even opens up the very, the, the very opening mm-hmm. shots of the movie. It's like, looks like blood, but it's like raspberry drizzle or whatever the hell is doing something with the restaurant again, tying into the, the whole reservation thing. Yeah, I mean, I just think that's so, it says so much about how odd our culture is that was, you know, we have these extremely wealthy people who are obsessed about, about the, not even eating the food because I don't think anyone actually eats any of it. No, I don't think so. I think they just get it. And then it, you know, it's like a piece of art, you know, it's ridiculous. Like when we see it, when it's presented and, it doesn't even sound like you could eat it like charcoal whatever that just sounds disgusting (laughs) Uh, and then then he has that moment where he's talking about uh, all the problems that are facing the world and he's on about Sri Lanka I think and he says some other countries and you're just like he's such a hypocrite he's just saying things that it's almost like he's just repeating them from what he's heard on tv or on the radio he doesn't believe into any of that and it's all so fake and that's what you know is interesting about the film because it's never making these making an obvious joke to us it's treating us quite intelligent allowing us to come to our own conclusions about that and we can see it and we're like yeah this is just such a fake world but you know, would we want to be part of it? That's the odd thing is like, do we want to be part of this world where we get to eat in really fancy restaurants and drive in around in limos and stuff and wear Rolexes? It's so like disturbing to that fact because, you know, we've all been there where we've, you know, we've seen like a handbag or not in your case, maybe in your case, um, but you've seen like a, a really expensive item and you know you can probably go pick up something equally as good from, you know, a local supermarket or whatever. And you think, oh, but it's got a name to it. It's got a name attached to it. And then if I get this, I'll have a, I'd be a status symbol. Yeah, exactly. So. You even see that when he's taking the the overnight bag early on with the <laughs> presumably Paul Allen's body, and the only thing the other guy notices is Lewis notices is, oh, is that this brand? He's like, no, no, that's this one. And apparently, the movie had issues like getting the rights to certain songs for the, for the murder scenes and to certain like designer brands to be mentioned and things like that because they like some of them didn't want to be associated <laughs> in that context, which I can understand. Yeah, I think as well, isn't it? There's a bit where he goes to the um, the laundry place. He's trying to get his sheets cleaned, and it's like so. You know, the he, he's like the the blood or whatever it is on those those sheets, and he's she says, "Oh, you have to use bleach to get them out," and he's like, "You can't can't use bleach. Do you know how much these cost and all that?" And it's like he's almost like. That could be something that could get him caught if he is committing the crimes. Mm-hmm. But the fact that these sheets happen to cost like, oh gosh, I don't know, a crazy amount of money and he doesn't want to ruin them 
is like well if you are a serial killer would you really be that stupid <laughs> <laughs> well the, I, I think the uh, the sheets are one element that it, that's kind of goes against the the twist at the end of the movie i know uh, Brett Easton Ellis was a little disappointed in certain aspects of the adaptation because I guess the book is more of an unreliable narrator from the beginning, whereas the movie treats mm. it as kind of a twist towards the end. I think the sheets there early on are, are kind of an outlier where it's like, well, is it blood? Is it, you know, what is what is that about? Do you think that they should have had kind of thrown the true nature of the murders into doubt early on? Or do you like that you think it's more effective as kind of a climactic reversal? I well, I kind of do and I don't. The twist kind of works. Yeah, there's just just too many scenes that seem to not don't don't add up. Mm-hmm. You know, where has poor Alan actually gone? Why the whole bit with the um, the estate agent? She acts really dodgy. You know, like I suggest you don't come here again. You know, and the whole thing about the Times ad and um, like, you know, it's all been painted and redecorated. Why? Why would it need being painted and redecorated? Yes, it's just lots of things that don't add up. So, you know, would it be worse if the fact that those who are around him know that he's a serial killer and they're covering up for him? Isn't that even more horrifying? I think the thing is too that the, the kind of the ultimate statement of the movie is that whether he or not he killed these people or any of them or some of them it kind of almost doesn't matter because he's never going to mm-hmm. live up to like and i think that's the not to get too much into the ending but i think that's kind of ultimately like the kind of from patrick's perspective the tragedy of the ending is that it, it all meant nothing like he doesn't like even <laughs> to stand out to make himself notorious people are like yeah i don't care where's my dinner reservation uh, you know and i think that's that kind of dissection of that lifestyle, as as you mentioned, I think is something you only get from a female uh, female filmmaker. And then you know, Heron Mary Heron co-wrote this with Guinevere Turner, who's actually plays Elizabeth in the movie. Yeah, which is funny, and I love the fact that she mocks uh, Patrick about his taste in you know, Whitney Houston. Yeah, like <laughs> that that moment where he looks so like pissed off at her. Yeah. Because he goes on with this passionate rant about how how powerful his, his her music is, and she says nobody listens to Whitney Houston anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you are, are there people that that feel like this movie glorifies that lifestyle? Because you mentioned Fight Club earlier, and I know some people think that that movie makes you know is makes being in a fight club and being this ultra masculine guy seem really cool and that's actually a conversation i already recorded with uh with someone else we're going to be airing that next week after this one so uh that was an interesting conversation looking back at that movie but do you think this film has been misread by i i'm assuming straight white males i think potentially i can almost see like this film potentially being taken over by like the incel type of movement because Mm, of its violence towards women and then that's the scary thing is you know you put something out there and it's open to multiple interpretations because you know we say like we said the ending is it really based on you know is he the killer or not and you know if you suddenly read that and you've got a sort of toxic viewpoint of women then you might 
side with his actions that you know he commits during during the film so um yeah there's i i haven't really come across that but That's i'm probably sure for the best <laughs> yeah yeah i'm sure there's potentially those who are out there who probably side with with him and uh, root for him to commit all those crimes I really like so much of the imagery in the film. I think it says so much. I mean, there's that famous shot that I think is even in the trailer of him taking off his like face mask. And it's the mm. metaphor for the mask. Of his, he even says the mask of my sanity is about to slip. And I really love that image because it, it is like he is he's a completely different person when he's around. As you mentioned, he's like really showboating. And I wonder how much of I wonder how much of even the comments that he makes to his secretary, like if he even necessarily feels that way or he's like, this is the way I have to be. I need to put her down and put her in her place because that's the world I live in. And, and you know, I feel like he, he has a lot of things on in the background that I think. Uh, the one point he's he's got he's on the phone he just got porn randomly playing in the <laughs> background um, he's like working out and he's got Texas Chainsaw Massacre on like early in the morning I guess um, and there's like all these things that he's like constantly trying to reaffirm his own masculinity he's like really you know really uh, narcissistic he's looking at himself in the mirror while he's you know while he's having sex uh, with the, the you know the prostitutes and uh, apparently this is one of the first times that Christian Bale was really physically committed to a role. Um, so I guess that's kind of a good transition. Let's talk about what do you, you know, what is it about Christian Bale's performance? Who, apparently he, uh, part of his role here was inspired by Nicolas Cage and Vampire's Kiss, which I can see mm. with that kind of over the top acting. You can see elements of that a little bit, some of his facial expressions and things like that. What is it about Christian Bale that in this role that you think makes him such a, a great fit and uh, you know, could you really have seen anybody else in this at that point? Yeah, I think originally they wanted Leonardo DiCaprio in this role. Mm -hmm. And Oliver Stone, I think too, to direct it, which would have yeah. been the hyper-masculine version that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't think that really would have worked. I mean, not that maybe not as Leonardo DiCaprio back in the, late 90s I mean he I don't know he, I just picture him back from that period as Jack from Titanic so it's really hard to sort of see him transition into you know a darker role I just don't know whether he would have been had the maturity to do that yeah not at that time I think his <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street I think has maybe shades of that slimy guy in a suit yeah it would have been really sh yeah I just can't imagine it at all but I, I read that uh, Bale was inspired by Tom Cruise for this too. role. Yeah, which looking at it, I can understand, especially when you see that famous uh, interview he talks about Scientology and he's all laughing and joking and doing like that really odd laugh that goes on for a bit too long. And he's just look like the smile it's far too wide. So yeah, I can certainly see um, how he would have been inspiration. And so. this is years before Tom Cruise's like famous, you know, Oprah Meltdown. appearance, jumping yeah. on the couch and all that. And I mean, if you couple that with the persistent rumors about his sexuality and all that, how he need, you know, needs to prove him his masculinity. I mean, I, I, that's, just, that was a, a kind of like a good uh, observation on the part of, of Bale because you can totally see that in this performance. Yeah, it's, it's, it's down to like even 
when he's around, he's trying so hard to smile and it just doesn't seem natural. Because when we, that, that ending where he does, you know, he says, oh, I'm just a happy camper. And then you cut to him and his face is just completely devoid of any emotion as the camera sort of zooms in tighter and tighter to just his eyes. And yeah, it's such a great performance because it goes from like, yeah, I could see the Nicolas Cage aspects of, you know, absolutely going complete crazy and um, like in Vampire's Kiss, that sort of erratic behavior. But at the same time, there's, it's not just uh, acting crazy or, you know, uh, for the entire performance, there's more to it. There's more layers to it. And is it brilliant? sort of transition from overreacting and overacting and being hyper to being emotionless and devoid of any sort of real emotion that Bale manages to convey. He does it's almost like, I don't know how he does it. It's amazing. Like in in the same scene, he'll just go from one one emotional state to the next. It's just like such a quick transition this was kind of instrumental in him getting Batman because he is mm. doing the, he was, he's kind of, he's doing the layers uh, in, in Batman begins to a, to a different extent, obviously, <laughs> but in that he's, you know, focused on fighting crime, but then has to kind of pretend to be this playboy. And, and it's like he, him wearing a mask, like as Bruce Wayne. And then I think in that regard, that's probably part of the reason he's such a, he's probably with the best Bruce Wayne we've ever had because he brings the same kind of skill set to that role in that, you know, he can mm. fit in with the, with those guys. Uh, but we can see that, that it's all a facade. I mean, I mentioned the gif of him in the raincoat earlier, but there's also <laughs> that gif of him making the face when he's talking to Paul Allen and he's like, oh, Patrick Bateman, what a loser. He's with that Evelyn, great ass, whatever. And he's making that face like smile and like kind of like, you know, that whole, his his reaction sh- shot uh, yeah. to, to that is so much going on in his in his on his face in that one moment. And I think it, it's impressive how he's kind of playing... I don't know, at least two or three characters in this one performance. Yeah, it's, it's really good. And uh, I think it shows um, the complexity of the character because I think anyone else could have just played it as just a straight sociopath, psychopath type of role. You you do feel sort of sympathetic in a way towards, towards his character because he just does seem so pathetic. I mean, he does seem like a dork. You know, but at the same time, he he's a, a threat to you, so you feel very threatened by his presence and how he can quickly, you know, change from one emotional state to the next. So, uh, and I think as well, Bale was, you know, unknown at the time. So it's the fact that people didn't realize he was British until after filming had stopped because his American accent was so convincing just really shows his sort of level of commitment to the role. He's like a a rat in a cage and he doesn't know what to do to get out of it. And so that's, you know, simmers in him and kind of murderous, as this kind of murderous fantasy that I guess he creates for himself, assuming that none of the, none of the murders really happened because there's that, you know, Gene finds the drawing. So I guess the implication is that he's kind of been just sketching away in his office, (laughs) 
because we never yeah. see anybody do any work in this movie either. He's t- he's mm-hmm. like he's like criticizes her outfit and then he turns on Jeopardy. You know, we never so we don't know what he's doing in his office all this time. Um, so w- what do you what is your take on that? Do you think any of the murders really happened, or are all they are they just kind of the his his losing touch with reality because he doesn't know? Yeah, he's lost all sense of himself, I guess. I think maybe a couple of the murders might actually happen. I'm thinking maybe the the homeless man mm-hmm. happened because it's it's a it's completely believable in that situation. It's not done. I mean, it, it's violent, but it's not done in an excessive, almost outlandish type of way. It's actually done in a, a setting that he's not familiar with and you could almost see that sort of happening I mean and potentially maybe the poor Alan to extent but I, I wonder whether the ones with the women actually happen because like you mentioned earlier you we see him with you know Texas Chainsaw Massacre in in the background and maybe he's just fantasizing about that because he's seen the film and he's connecting it and maybe reliving some sort of um, fantasy in his head and the fact that his approach towards women they don't really seem to like him you know they they kind of find him a bit yeah a bit of a dork and not really they laugh at him so maybe it's him sort of imagining these scenarios but yeah it, it does reach a point where if he's not going to be uh if he's not committed the crimes now then i think it's definitely going to happen mm-hmm. and that's what's unnerving is the the fact that we're just you know, you're always waiting for it to happen you know just you know will he be the type of person that just snaps one day at the office you know um there's the yeah. potential there what do you think <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I think I think you're right. I think that's part of what's so ominous about the way the film ends is that, you know, he's he's saying, you know, there's been no catharsis. I have no deeper knowledge of myself. This confession has meant nothing. And you can almost feel like he'll be, he would be one of those people you'd read about on the news that just shows up to his office one day with a machine gun or something, you know, uh, and just completely snaps and goes goes off because he's just doing anything he can to it's to basically imagine or, or this elaborate power trip because he feels so powerless in his in his own life he's just trying to get his reservations trying to get his business cards trying to get people to see him a certain way trying to, to get acceptance and not getting anywhere with it and you know to the point that he's in a completely emotionless state at all times including with his apparent free fiance uh, and and I feel like it's almost intentional that he asks he stresses blonde prostitutes only almost because he wants to uh, he wants to punish uh his, his fiance who we haven't even mentioned like a lot of the, the supporting cast of this film I and mean, we got reese witherspoon and willem defoe chloe sevigny josh lucas jared leto justin Thoreau. like there's a lot of big people in this movie and uh i think it's kind of it's interesting specifically that Reese Witherspoon is in this because this was that year like right after Cruel Intentions, right around the time of mm. election. She was right pretty much about to pop, and yet she's kind of the you know the I don't know <laughs> the put upon fiance basically in this. So I mean I think yeah I think he's 
definitely just looking for some semblance of meaning in, in this. I mean, he even says at one point when he's with Gene in his apartment and he's seeing a woman's head in his freezer and, and uh, you know, kind of figuring out what weapon he's going to use. He says, uh, I guess you could say I want a meaningful relationship with someone special. I think that's honestly probably the most, other than the, the confession scene, probably the most genuine he's been that film. Like, mm. I, think he, I think he really means that. And I don't, you know, I just, he doesn't see any recourse for that. Um, you know, and it kind of leads into what is kind of his his either breakdown or breakthrough, like him actually trying to fight against those urges more. Because right after that sequence, uh, he breaks up with Evelyn, probably because he's probably going to kill her at some point if she doesn't get out of if he doesn't get out of that situation. So I feel like there's a segment in the film where he recognizes the what he's doing and he's trying to sort of stop himself. Mm. There's that, you know, that moment where he's, I guess it's just that scene where he takes on all the, the police and we would, we could probably agree that that's not real. That's, no, you know, yeah. clearly a fantasy. <laughs> uh, so he know, and then he, he knows it's a fantasy because he shoots the car and it blows up and he <laughs> looks at the gun. Like he's like, I'm huh? an action movie. How did that happen? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I wonder whether that's, you know, whether he's got schizophrenia or something, he's having an episode, a manic episode, and he's in the street. I can, you can almost think about, like, people watching someone like that, having a, a breakdown and, you know, living out some sort of fantasy that they can only see. It's almost like he's trying his hardest to snap out of whatever this fantasy that he's created. But maybe... In the end, he just almost accepts it. He asks for help and he tries to confess to people like, you know, this is what potentially is going to happen and nobody wants to know. And and that's what, you know, in that end, I think he sort of succumbs to, to whatever illness that he has potentially. That's when we're we're in straight up fantasy land. Right before that, the ATM is telling him to feed a, a, a stray cat, and then it's just he goes on a crazy rampage. Like it's, I, I think in a way it's kind of similar to something like uh, something like Shutter Island or wherever, where you're trying mm. to get you you're trying to this is your last gasp at trying to break out of I, I guess this corporate prison, this like this this this. this capitalist corporate construct that the you know social construct basically that he's trapped in and i think that's kind of why part of why the movie is so upsetting is that yes it's violent imagery yes it's this disgusting attitude towards women but it's also like in the end he's just like well i guess this is where like there's no he doesn't get better he doesn't like treat seek treatment he doesn't like nothing nothing is ultimately accomplished it's all kind of uh, futile in the end, and I think that the title is specifically relevant to to uh, the United States and the American kind of. This is you know work harder, work harder, so you can pay for this thing, so you can achieve this status level and all that. And obviously, that's not strictly a national thing, but I mean, it, in the 1980s, this film is really uh, encapsulating that that kind of uh, pursuit of of wealth of. Uh, fame and I, as yeah, you said yeah. now it's even more so now that's gotten so much worse because of social media because of technology because we've become even more obsessed with celebrity what's interesting is he, he quotes all these songs which are talking about finding your true love and being true to yourself and you know all these messages of like 
you know, self-love and empowering stuff. And he knows it all, but and he repeats it back and he talks about the meanings of, you know, Whitney Houston songs and all that. And, um, yeah, he doesn't carry any of that out. He doesn't live by those rules or, you know, that are stated in those songs. So it's like the way he, the way he wants the world to be like, he wants the world to, even though he's dorky, he wants it to be hip, to be square, which is, which is, I think part of what his appeal of that song is. So it's, it's like he's, he's loses himself in this, in this world where those things, you know, hold true to him and, and to the world around him, as opposed to what he sees every day. Yeah. And I think the, the choice of music in this film is just brilliant. And, uh, yeah, I don't think you could get any, a more iconic scene than the hip to be square scene. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, it's just everything about that scene is, you know, when he, uh, when he's got the newspapers down, so, so he doesn't want to ruin the floor because he's, <laughs> yeah, it's just like, so it's almost you don't you know something bad's going to happen but you don't know exactly how it's going to happen and like you say we don't actually see the aftermath of disposing of the body i think that's what would maybe uh, someone else uh, another director might have wanted to explore and maybe a lot more graphic detail and kind of relief that we don't see it but at the right. same time, like I said, then our the mind is, yeah, yeah. And that, so. that scene, I think, is such an encapsulation of the film itself because it's, it's tense because, you know, something violent is about to happen. But it's also <laughs> kind of hilarious and ridiculous because yeah. he's like, oh, I think this is their seminal work. And he's dancing and he's so, <laughs> s- such, it's such a stark contrast between the way he is literally any other time in the movie uh, other than when he's about to kill somebody. Uh, so it's like that's the only time he feels free to be himself in front of someone is because, well, you're about to die. So I can tell you, I really like four is there is there a seminal album, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, it's just such a it's in a lot of ways. It's such a weird film, but it's also very, uh, it very, very worthy of, I think, critical analysis. And, and it's it's nice to see that it's been achieving such a like cult status and that it's actually been studied in this way in some regard. So, cause I think the movie has, uh, has a lot to say, a lot of social criticism and satire, I think is the, is the best way to get a lot of these points across. I mean, you've seen a lot of that lately. I, I, uh, I really like, uh, like the movies like sorry to bother you. And, mm. uh, I, I'm trying, I'm at a loss right now for other ones, but like satire, I think is, is a, a, pretty clean way to make these points that ult- uh, you know ultimately people might be less uh find less palatable you know yeah i think if you were to do a straight documentary about you know the yuppie culture in the 80s which i, I suspect there probably are documentaries out there um i don't think people would necessarily sit down and watch it but then if you were to say you know say actually this is a horror film you should watch this uh, but it's not really a horror film. Um, people will be more likely to to sit down and digest it, and I think that's it, it works really well because, like I said, on the first film you think, oh, this is just a 
you almost go into it thinking, ah, oh, this is going to be a slasher movie. You know, does, it's called American Psycho. Is it a sequel to Psycho? Um, <laughs> uh, I saw a bit with him in a, with a chainsaw, you know. It's, uh, so you expect it's going to be just a straightforward slasher horror film. But then that's you get that, but you don't get that. You get something a lot more layered and, and complicated, a bit like the character of Patrick Bateman. So, and I just find what I like about the film is that I every time I go back to watch it, I almost spot something new each time. So it's it's just really there's so much there, which is really interesting to sort of analyze and whether it's all fantasy the characters that he interacts with i wonder if like sir, even the detective is real you know that's <laughs> that's, yeah yeah it's all he's only in how, basically two scenes uh willem dafoe yeah so and of course you know uh we've got so many great performances in different actors who turn up and you're like oh my god it's so and so from that film it's uh, you know everyone's just uh it's it's got so much going for it oh i want to just ask you a quick question yeah <laughs> what music do you think patrick bateman would be listening to in 2019 Ooh. uh what is the uncool music to listen to now <laughs> the uncool <laughs> pop music i'm trying to think would he be listening to like Ariana Grande or something? I wonder. Oh, uh, I feel like yeah, definitely. I feel <laughs> like maybe Taylor Swift. Yes, there you go. Exactly. Which everybody yeah. apparently every, everybody is buying that her music and Ariana Grande, like all these like pop divas and and things like that. I think he'd be listening to that and really dissecting. Who's like, oh, this is what Shake It Off is really about, you know? Yeah, this is <laughs> no, what Kate Perry's Roar is all about. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a rich movie, and, and I, I agree with you. Like, it, it is, it, there's a lot more to it than, than I think a lot of people realize upon first watch. That's why, as I said, since you picked this, this was a, a great opportunity for me to go back you know, and see it through a completely different lens and, and appreciate it on a whole other level. And the fact that Christian Bale has this like, you know, perfect bone structure and like, you know, has this sort of uh, anonymous white guy look that he in this film, I think it, it fits this role really well. And yeah, that's it's the whole that's the whole movie is about appearances can be deceiving. So it makes it makes sense that it would be it almost makes sense that it's kind of be marketed as a slasher film and then you go into like, Oh, this is not at all what I thought it was just like Patrick Bateman isn't what he seems to be, et cetera, et cetera. So it, there's a lot, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff here. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that we were able to talk about this one because especially since it's from a, a female filmmaker mm. and because it, it, it brings, it, it shows you what impact it can have when you put a female perspective on a story that would ordinarily be told uh, by a man. And I think if we got Oliver Stone's version on this, it would have been kind of natural born killer style, like really graphic and really over the top and almost accused of glorifying the violence. I don't think you could really say this movie is glorifying the violence. I think terrible people might see it and be like, oh, I wish I had those suits and those glasses and those dinner reservations mm. and those business cards. But it doesn't, as we said, the, the violence is barely on screen. So I, I don't think you could really say that it's it's that. Uh 
Yeah, we don't really see the violence from his point of view as well. Right. Um, especially in terms of when uh, he kills the prostitutes, we see it from um, Chrissy's perspective. And she's the one that we're rooting for to get away. We're not rooting for him to kill her. Right, Because, exactly. you know, she's actually just so she comes across as quite a, in, you know, we don't really know her character, but she doesn't come across as being like nasty or she, she seems like completely genuine as a person. She's not like part of this fake world that the other people that uh, surround him are. So, yeah, it's, it's, I don't think it really, you, I don't think to me it definitely doesn't glorify violence, but I can definitely see that maybe other people could interpret it that way. And that's what's worrying. You know, your, your mention about whether the detective was real, I think I hadn't really thought of that. I think that's an interesting take as well, mm. because you can almost see it as Patrick's trying to basically construct his own narrative. He's like, ooh, I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm going to commit this murder. And then this cop who, in his two scenes, Willem Dafoe seems very, like Detective Kimball seems very suspicious of Patrick. Like he, he, he almost seems like he knows what's up, but... Yeah. Uh, Patrick kind of skates by. So it's almost kind of, you know, I guess the, the thrill of the, of the chase. I'm going to commit these murders and then, oh, this detective is going to maybe be on to me, but I'm going to get away with it. So it's, again, kind of that power trip. Yeah, it's all just a bit of a fantasy in his head. You know, you could always picture him going to sort of sit in a restaurant and mumbling to himself, like play acting, you know, and nobody's what like paying him any attention because we're all too self-obsessed in, in our own business so it's yeah it'd be i definitely want to actually write about that now <laughs> yeah you should it's that just... would be i because i never i'd never thought of that part of it and i think that's that's an interesting uh that's, an, that's the thing there's so many different interpretations of this film so <laughs> I'm glad that we were we were able to kind of dig into it. I mean, we've already talked about it for a little over an hour, and I feel like there's a lot more we could have, we could have said. Um, is there yeah. is there is there anything uh, that we haven't talked about regarding American Psycho that that you wanted to mention before we start wrapping up? I you mentioned there was a sequel. I've not seen the sequel. Have you yeah, seen I, the sequel? I, I have not. I I've heard that it's pretty terrible. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like. The, the film is exactly what this movie seemed like it would be. It is kind of just hollow and just a basic slasher movie. And the fact that it went straight to video uh, doesn't help matters. And the fact that it has seemingly no real super connection to this film, uh, it's just kind of a marketing thing that they're like, well, American Psycho was a hit. So let's just make this a sequel to that <laughs> in, in kind of post-production, basically. <laughs> So I kind of have no, even Mila Kunis is like, yeah, that was really bad. <laughs> I kind of regret that one. So I, I would probably recommend that listeners not really bother with that. Maybe just go watch this one again and, and then uh, read some of B's analysis that I'm sure will come on <laughs> Filmotomy at some point. Um, but yeah, so no, I have, I have not seen that. No, I've avoided it like the plague. I mean, <laughs> I, I love Mila Kunis. Yeah, I can't see her actually being a serial killer. She's just no. too cool. She's just too cool to be like dorky Patrick Bateman. <laughs> B, can you uh, tell everybody where they can find you on social media? Um, so when I'm not returning videotapes, um, <laughs> I'm over. <Nice. laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I've been waiting to use that all all time. 
you know, all the way through this podcast. So <laughs> I'd be thinking that one through. That, that would have been a good s- sign off. Like, oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm going to go return some videotapes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, darn it. I've, I've, I've done it too early, <laughs> haven't I? <laughs> Anyway, when when I'm not returning videotapes, um, you can find me over at Film Twitter, and I am uh, at the Film uh, B, and you can also find me over at Filmotomy, and uh, yeah, like I say, we're uh, about to go back to rewind. 1957 next, so which will be really interesting. So uh, lots of films to be. Um, discussed there I think I'm personally going to be writing about The Incredible Shrinking Man which is one of my favourite films uh, as a kid so that's going to be one I'm going to love to revisit and uh, you can also find my stuff at Next Best Picture, Jump Cut online and you know wherever else whoever needs me I'll I'll come and write for them (laughs) She's everywhere, is what she's saying. Basically, you, you yeah, can't run in, you can't run into a bit of film analysis online and not and not find uh, <laughs> Bianca stuff. So, uh, Bianca Garner, thank you so much for coming on the Crooked Table podcast. I'd love to have you on another time, and and I'll definitely keep you posted on uh, in their own league. And I, I would you know would yeah. be honored to, to show up on there at some point. Oh, brilliant! I would love for you to come on, and I'm sure you know um, there's plenty more horror films by women that we can uh, explore and discuss in great detail. Oh yeah, for sure. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.